this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters Friday. Get tickets now. Hi there, and welcome to New Books in South Asian Studies. I'm your host, Ian Cook, and today we're talking about lethal spots, vital secrets, medicine and martial arts in South India. The book is by Roman Seeler, and it's published by Oxford University Press in 2015. Now, the book is a fine-grained ethnographic study of Varmakalai, the art of vital spots, a South Indian practice that encompasses both martial and medical activities. The interview that follows explores how Varmakalai relates to the wider field of manual therapies and martial traditions in the subcontinent, as well as the theories that inform the practice, the relationship between healing and fighting, as well as the place of secrets in this tradition. It's a truly fascinating study that raises questions about topics such as categorization, concealment and learning that really go way beyond the confines of South India. I think the book and this interview is going to be of interest to many. I had the pleasure of speaking with Roman just a few moments before. Okay, so it gives me great pleasure to welcome Roman to the show. We're going to have a really interesting discussion today, but let's dive straight in there and uh, really ask a question that I had when I first saw the, the title of your book, which is Lethal Spots, Vital Secrets. So what are lethal spots and why are they secret? Okay, yeah. Well, I chose maybe the lethal spots, um, especially for the title. I do use this in... in um, in the book as well, but I actually prefer vital spots, but I thought it would be a kind of a nice pun to have lethal spots and vital secrets, because I think the the secrecy part is quite vital to the overall practice or practices that that are subject um, of my research. So there are lethal spots or vital spots. You you can use both. And um, maybe this kind of um, duality also covers the, the duality of the practices. So, yeah, maybe good to keep that in mind. And these spots that my research has been about, um, they are a set of sensitive or even extremely vulnerable parts of the body, um, of all bodies, actually, both human and animal. And these spots are the focus of attention of uh, both medical specialists and of practitioners of martial arts in South India especially in the extreme south of the subcontinent. In um, the, the, um, the state of India is, is called uh, Tamil Nadu, and this uh, um, extreme south is called Kanyakumari district. So a lot of listeners will not be familiar with this uh, region, but um, it's, a, it's a very special place, so to say, especially with regard to these um, practices that I've been looking at. And it's a kind of dual practice. It's both... Uh, it has a medical side and it has a martial or combative um, side to it. Now, what may appear as kind of an odd um, confluence to, to many Western minds, and certainly it, it appeared as very odd to me when I came first into contact with this practice, seems uh, not contradictory at all to practitioners. On the contrary, it seems more um, conducive to actually combine fighting and healing. So, but let me tell you about the spots that you asked. 
Um, it's despite my my starting out initially by by contrasting Western and some other the, these practitioners, my informants who who may see it or practice uh, differently. I think it's very important to actually de-exoticize um, the subject of my study or these spots or the practices surrounding them. I have actually not chosen the subject matter for the reason that it can be quite fascinating to observe practitioners. In fact, I actually have witnessed some quite amazing stuff, including, for example, re resuscitation of uh, um, unconscious, unconscious persons, unconscious patients, or... Um, like kind of uh, benumbing um, chicken and then kind of uh, bringing them back to consciousness again and some kind of spectacular um, performances of that. But this is actually not the, the reason. Of course, it means that some people will, will read the book if they read martial arts or medicine or a combination of any of those. But I think... Um, It's um, it's my job, as it is the job of many anthropologists, or if not, if if, if it's not part of the job description of anthropology altogether, to kind of um, show that anyone can um, come to a point of understanding other forms of behavior and and others, so to say. So, of course, um, and then as generations of anthropologists before us have argued, understanding others and other behaviors. Um, may just allow for the for for room and peace for these to exist in this world. So and moreover, understanding other behaviors and their kind of underlying rationales may help us reflect on our own behaviors and assertions too. And in the case of the vital spots, for instance, I'm con quite convinced that we can reflect on what medicine is, in fact, for us, and also how this may be. Um, may be approached by anthropologists and others and defined in intercultural contexts. So what is medical then need not be uh, defined in the most narrow terms, in the narrowest terms and reduced to medicine alone, whatever that is, to medicine, hospital, therapeutic manipulation and so on and so forth. That is, medicine, medical practice, healing, and even its efficacy can involve and may in fact hinge upon a good deal of things that commonly are not deemed as part of medicine or as strictly medical or medical only or something like this. This is also seen in the case of uh, so-called traditional or indigenous healing practices, especially in India, which often, often have fed nationalist sentiments or which have influenced political decisions and vice versa, in fact. And of course, this is not just the, the case for India. Also, um, for example, politics are very influential in any German hospital. Uh, take Obamacare in the US, which is as much political, if not more political, as it is, in fact, medical. Or the fact that current social trends always shape the way we perceive and uh, medicate ourselves. So um, I have moved away a bit, little bit from the vital spots, but um, what I'm, I'm trying to say is that I'm describing this uh, practice that to me at first seemed very kind of uh, different, other, exotic, and I have come to an understanding of it, and I have come to an understanding how, in fact, uh, the combination of, of medicine and martial arts in, in this vital spot practice 
or lethal sport practice for that matter is quite uh, instrumental, quite important. And that is an important argument of my book, I guess, and part of that argument. Moreover, um, um, there's one more aspect in how far I can um, make people who are not familiar with the with this um, medical martial uh, practice um, understand these these spots that are being used by practitioners. Most of us know the funny bone, for example, mm-hmm. and the anatomic term is uh, nervus ulnaris. And most of us most of us actually know it only by its painful, very unpleasant effect. For example, when hit when we hit the elbow on on the edge of a table. So um, the same spot or its effects also is recognized as a vital spot by practitioners alongside numerous others. And to be fair, the most of which um, produce effects considerably, considerably different from the funny bone. But still, we know these spots, many spots which kind of uh, produce um, unpleasant effects, pain, and, and so on and so forth. There are different, different ones as well. But we we have the same um, bodies. That is actually a, a very uh, interesting and important uh, fact um, to the study as well. So it's not all that dif- different, actually. What can be done with these spots is quite different. Mm-hmm. So um, in in Tamil Nadu, which is in the southeast of India, you can find these clinics, small clinics. And you can um, you can see these signboards, which um, clearly tell you there there is a clinic for this for vital sport practice. And the vital sports in the Tamil vernacular are called varmam. Uh, varmam are these vital sports, or actually that's that's my translation. And um, there's a term for the practice altogether, and and that is also for the uh, combination of these medical and martial practices. That is varmakalai. And Kalai means art, and Varma means vital sports. So it's the art of the vital sports. Now, um, as I said, for many Western minds, this can be quite um, can be quite an odd combination. Uh, but what is even more odd then is to find out that it is, in fact, uh, more often than not, the same uh, individuals who practice both in tandem, so to say. So they have um, a clinic a small kind of um, dispensary or a medical practice. And on the side or in, in tandem, they, they practice these martial arts. They may teach students in um, attacking in defensive exercises. And the underlying theory is the theory of the vital spots. So there are these uh, points, these, these, these loci, these, these spots of the body, which are very vulnerable, and you can use them for therapy. At the same time, you can use them for um, attacking another person or defending. It's it's also, of course, important to know how to defend your uh, vulnerable parts of your body. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, so what still may sound very kind of exotic and other is, I find, um, if you're in these places in Kanyakumari um, district, a very interesting, very important part of the overall healthcare sector, an unmet part, to be sure, but I think it's a very important part. And you can see if you uh, take the the empirical data of who visits these practitioners 
um, who has who consults these medical specialists for what reasons you find that they are very popular with both urban and rural populations both rich and poor and um, a lot of people make use of them especially for fractures but also for um, other chronic pain related often neurological uh, disorders so i think um, the interesting thing for me was also there's an um, very interesting and very important at the same time part of the Indian healthcare sector that is so far has remained unmapped. And so one of my intentions was to um, put this on the map, so to say. Yeah. So, and then related to that, of course, is the question, um, why is it not put, why has it not been put on the map before? And that, of course, has to do with the part a kind of um, an invisibility of practitioners and practices. So, of course, I said you can see these signboards, and these signboards are often painted images of broken and then um, bandaged bones and um, things like this. So people, especially illiterate people, can know, ah, this is the place where these vital spots are addressed, where fractures are healed, and so on and so forth. Um And moreover, you have uh, these practitioners are uh, mostly not trained in colleges or in schools, universities, which you uh, nowadays have for these um, so-called traditional or, or indigenous Indian medical systems like Ayurveda, Siddha medicine, and so, so on and so forth. But the Varmakalai experts, they have been uh, still largely trained in... Um, a more what is called traditional system. It's called Guru Shishya Paramparai, which is the, um, the generation of uh, teacher, student, the, the guru uh, instructing a student in a, in a very kind of close, intimate uh, surrounding and environment. The student learning by um, observing and assisting uh, a, uh, a teacher or guru for, for uh, many number, numbers of years for Uh, in the most cases. And so the uh, the knowledge transmission system is still uh, largely not institutionalized. And I was interested in that too. And of course, I was interested a lot in the fact that, and you can find that in, in my title, in the title of my book, Lethal Spots, Vital Secrets, that these uh, the knowledge is kept very secret by those who actually deal with it or those who are in possession of this type of knowledge. Uh, it will be hard to find a practitioner who is not repeating uh, mantras constantly that sound like the vital spots are secret, vital spots are a secret matter, I cannot talk about the vital spots and, and so on and so forth. So um, secrecy is always kind of, kind of um, yeah, is uh, already there. And in fact, a term that is used in Tamil, that is derived from Sanskrit, in fact, is marmam. Marmam means secret, or one, one of the um, translations of marmam can be secret. So often they say, uh, varmam na marmam, which means uh, varmam is secret. So it's, it's, it's so close together uh, structurally, linguistically, semantically. So it's It's just as it is, and everyone knows that more or less. So, um, for example, also as a patient, you are not expected to to ask questions to to the uh, practitioner. 
you're not supposed to ask questions uh, to the doctor that you are consulting. The doctor will know, will find out, and then treat you, uh, for example, by stimulating a particular point, uh, stimulating one of these spots, or by some other kind of massaging technique. And that that's fine, or not. But you're not supposed to kind of talk about it. You're not supposed to find out um, if at all you're a student. Uh, you are. Um, you will be initiated uh, in into kind of learning uh, the practice, and and then you're on on the right track, so to say. But uh, otherwise, it's it's a very kind of uh, constricted type of knowledge, and and that is very important for the overall practice too, both for the medical side and for the martial side. Yeah, so secrecy was kind of central from from the start to my uh, research project. And I found um, secrecy is, is such an interesting um, aspect in every culture, in every region, in every individual. And it's such a kind of um, day-to-day activity also. It's such, a, such an interesting... Um, Uh, sociological practice, you could say, that um, it's actually striking that there are not many uh, or more uh, studies on secrecy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wonderful. This is this is great. You've really given us a good uh, overview of the book that we can get into a bit more detail in the rest of the conversation. I was actually just struck uh, then thinking about how most doctors, I mean, we're both in Europe, would like it if they were also not questioned all the time and they could keep their practice in, in, in secret as well. But let's, uh, but before, let's, let's get into the book. But before that, I was wondering, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? What's your academic background? What made you want to write this book? And then how did you go about doing it? Okay, sure. Um, um, currently, I'm an assistant professor at the University of Heidelberg at the and Department of Anthropology at the South Asia Institute. And these are the places where I um, did most of my studies in anthropology too. And um, in Heidelberg, there's a strong emphasis on South Asia, especially India, which suited me very well. And there's the South Asia Institute where I'm now employed. And there I started um, studying Tamil. And I, this was a language that really intrigued me and um, I felt I should continue. And, and I did ever since, ever since I started studying Tamil. And uh, most of what I learned, of course, I learned on, on streets in, in Tamil Nadu and from uh, people who were not at all aware that they were my teachers at that <laughs> time. And... Um, Yeah, and, and Tamil is kind of um, very central. I don't know if, if this is um, um, if readers get this um, aspect from from reading the book, but it's very very central. Um, reviewers uh, before publishing reviewers reading the the manuscript of my book also told me to drastically cut down on on using original terms. And although <laughs> I found this very uh, and this, this is a very kind of indological kind of. Um, Uh, activity or attitude that are this it, there cannot be a translation or something like this which is of course wrong too and if i use uh, the the original term in an english language book then still it's kind of a translation but i felt this is very important and i, I feel very kind of deeply about tamil too although this is another subject but i feel this this gave me a an unique kind of entrance into the field to people and to the subject which, I, I mean, I've stated en- enough so far, is considered as very secret, secretive uh, uh, practice and, and art. So this is quite central. 
and um, having uh, more or less kind of uh, a decent command of over the language. And uh, so this is a this is kind of the, the way um, that that I came to the field to the, the language to to study uh, a particular region. And during my studies, also I was interested uh, most in in medical anthropology. And still I am, of course. But also my the the subject matter kind of showed that uh, medical anthropology as other other kind of uh, delineations, demarcations in the field, like um, anthropology of religion, uh, ritual studies, uh, these things, they, they, they sound nice, they kind of um, tell you what a person's uh, research more or less is about, but often they kind of, they should not be like, like strict barriers keeping us from looking uh, over the, the, the limitations that they give us. So in in effect, this is very central, as as I guess anyone can see to uh, to this book that uh, the, the medical side and is is re clearly related to something else, namely in this case to the martial to these other kind of practices. But they may not necessarily be um, um, seen as as uh, diametrically opposed or something else but they are part and parcel of the same kind of practice and it took me some time to understand then i understood it's part and parcel and it it um belongs together if you practice one thing then you should or you could it will enhance the practice of of the uh, you, the of the other kind of aspect and so I think that's very important. And with regard to medical anthropology, it kind of um, made me aware at least, and I, this is what I wanted to kind of pass on to readers, that um, like kind of giving a caution of defining medicine and medical practice in two narrow terms. And mm -hmm. there we, in, especially in intercultural um, environments or kind of um, with regard to other cultures, other people, um, it's it's really good to stay open with regard to defining medicine and what makes medicine and what makes for efficacy in medicine, for example. And I think that's that's very important. And often we kind of engage in a in a pro, in processes of um, bracketing out. And if we think about how we define our own health, then we find that we include a lot of things that are not defined as purely medical in most instant instances. It's like, um, I don't know, <laughs> it's, it's, it's really difficult um, to find an example at the moment. But uh, for example, if um, sports, dance, um, movement therapy is used more and more in, in psychotherapy, uh, in, in um, medical treatments, that's, that may be a sign that there's also, uh, even in, in Western systems of medicine, in Western practices of medicine, there's much more going on that usually is being recognized as purely medical mm -hmm. as such. Mm -hmm. it's, ni it's nice you, you took the conversation to that about definitions and classifications, because that's what I wanted to ask you next. Because you do it okay. in, in chapter one, you, you position, um, I should try to pronounce this right, as I don't speak Tamil, Vamakalai, uh, in relation to other manual therapies and, and martial traditions uh, in the subcontinent. So I was wondering, how does it relate to other practices and, and how is it classified locally and, and wider as well? Okay, yes, I will try to do that. You pronounced that very 
very nicely, very well, <laughs> Barmakalai. And but the the questions um, um, are difficult to answer. I don't think I have a definite, uh, definitive or uh, even good answers to that. But I think the um, the questions of relations are actually very central again. Now, I found um, after looking uh, into uh, also some archival records, into published material, into um, primary uh, sources, that there are a lot of traditions, a lot of uh, bodily, especially bodily, but also philosophical traditions in the Indian subcontinent that show clear resemblances, uh, clear relations to these Varmakalai uh, vital spots. For example, you have um, parts of yoga clearly um, share the same concerns about the body, body movements, body postures, about uh, prana, which is a, a concept of a kind of um, um, vital air, wind that flows, circulates through the body and which is central to life or is life itself. And that, in fact, is, is a theory that um, informs, that underlines, underlies vital, the vital spot practices as found in, in the south of India. So um, you also find uh, astrological concepts that um, govern the body. And as they govern the body, they govern the vital spots from day to day, from season to season, and so on and so forth. There are clear relations to the um, the well-known, the accepted Indian systems of medicine, such as Ayurveda, where you have a, a particular theory of how the body works, of how health and um, ill health work, which, is, which hinges on, for example, um, a on, on a humoral, humoral system. So you have three uh, different humors that um, exist within the body, which, which can be described actually as three different processes, um, like um, moving things, uh, sticking things together or holding together, and um, digesting things. These are three different processes. And if these processes are out of balance, then the body is out of balance, health is out of balance, and the same kind of system, the same kind of theory uh, underlies also um, the Varmakalai practices, both medical and martial again. So there, there are these clear relations. It's, it's not that it sticks out, the, the, uh, sticks out from the rest of kind of Indian medical or other philosophical um, practices and traditions. So it can be clearly kind of uh, shown that uh, this is where it belongs to, this is where uh, maybe this comes from and of, in, in terms of origins and maybe also derivations. But this is precisely where uh, it becomes complicated. For example, there are uh, these um, wars fought over which Indian system of, system of medicine came first, which is the most original which is um, maybe derived from uh, another and which is um, should be seen as very separate from from the others and I think this um, um, this attempt to kind of delineate and 
the the practice of these systems in isolation is a very recent phenomenon and actually if you look at vital spots then the the um the 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 material that i've looked at shows actually that is quite uh, misguided to to look at um these medical systems in the first place as very clearly delineated and as separate or um functioning in in isolation or having functioned uh, through history in isolation um and rather these vital spots and i'm trying to um approach the the vital spots in terms of mm, manifestations of of the same kind of ideas and practices <laughs> so yeah and and i think then um it's it it shows that it's it's the kind of uh the modern or the, the attempt to kind of um structure um practices according to uh what they are according to is it medicine is it for example martial arts is it uh, it's it's a practice of um delineating and and demarcating and isolating these practices and also to of incorporating in into the more day curriculum of uh, um an institution for example which is a very kind of modern um very kind of modern thing um has actually led to this very recent phenomenon of of looking for uh these uh, of of separatedness and and there's actually not not so much separatedness if um if i look at the the history or these uh, sources on on the uh, on these vital spots but they they rather uh, seem to suggest that there's a lot of exchange a lot of contact and a lot of relatedness between say for example ayurveda siddha medicine uh, varmakalai uh, yoga and so on and so forth <laughs> wonderful and it's uh, nice you start to speak about the the, the ideas that, that inform these uh, different systems because uh, my next question is i wanted to ask you what the what is the sort of underlying theory or, or rather theories that in that inform the the art of vital spots Okay. Mm-hmm. Right. Um the theory that yeah. For example, I I mean Ayurveda is something that is probably better known in the west and it's something that is quite well known in India. Whereas Varmakala is is something that is not very well known and there there are a lot of shared um there are a lot of commonalities with regard to to the theory and the same is true for example to siddha medicine which is something that is uh this often described as the the tamil medicine or uh the medicine that is um mostly found in in tamil nadu state of india that is the south uh, southeast eastern state of the indian uh state so often the the question has been raised what is the difference for example between ayurveda and siddha medicine or f- between ayurveda siddha medicine and uh these varma uh, medical practices for that matter and again i wanted to clarify that they, i think it's not very uh, constructive to look at that question but it's more constructive to look at how uh did it come about that these uh, medical systems were uh created cemented as such as clearly uh um demarcatable systems yeah so mm, 
Okay, that being said, what, what's the underlying theory uh, behind the vital spots? It's, um, as I said, vulnerable spots of the body. You can, uh, they can be injured, and if injury results, then uh, the effects may be quite dramatic, and the effects can be as severe as instant death, for example. At least that's what manuscripts claim, that's what practitioners claim, and effects can also be quite light. It, effects can be a headache. Effects can be, if you hit your um, funny bone, for example, you know the effect, of course. Mm. So the the theory is that um, I've already mentioned pranam prana uh, prana is also it, it's derived from Sanskrit and it's it's the kind of the um, uh, it's the wind it's the the vital force so to say the vital wind that circulates through our bodies and the circulation of this wind uh, which we depend on which life depends on and prana has been um, like um, um, has been likened to to um, prana. Uh, life has been likened to prana, so it's the same, more or less, for many uh, commentators, for for many practitioners too. So, if uh, this wind is disturbed on its circulation through our bodies, then um, some very bad res- effects will will happen. And um, this prana wind exists in a concentrated form in particular places. Everyone has heard of chakras. And and this is of course it's it's a it's an internationally uh, worldwide it's it's a rage chakras chakra theory that or um, in 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 yoga practices chakras are, are very important and and this is another instance where we see this kind of relatedness of these um, Indian uh, theories and and practices. Now the chakras are very important to Varmakalaya practices too, and ch- many of these chakras, all of these chakras, are recognized as. Um, as very central or very important uh, vital spots too. Now, of course, there are many more vital spots than only these chakras, and some practitioners actually describe chakras to consist of uh, several ch- of several vital spots or numerous vital spots. But the idea here is uh, that uh, just as chakras are important because prana or this wind-flowing uh, um, life force is uh, existing in a, in, a, in a condensed form in these places, the vital spots also are quite vulnerable because uh, this, these are spaces uh, where this life force exists in a, in a condensed form, condensed way. So it's a kind of a junctures for, um, for life junctures. And some practitioners describe that, uh, for example, places where you have both bone and tendons and sinews and uh, nerves and blood and pranam, which of course pranam, uh, the latter is, is a category not known to Western anatomy, for example, where all these kind of uh, co uh, um, coexist. This is uh, uh, is a very uh, is a very lethal spot, part of the this uh, uh, spots category, which um, in case of an injury to that. Uh, almost always kind of means sure death. Yeah. So uh, I think f- um, for, for the sake of, of a short uh, interview, that, that should suffice. <laughs> yes, this could just... Mm-hmm. But let me add, but let me add, because I think this is, this is really an um, 
very central, very crucial aspect of, of the whole practice. That actually talking about this as a practice in the singular is quite misleading because uh, we have to talk about practices mm -hmm. and we have to uh, talk about theories in the plural because uh, I have seen uh, forms of practice that deviate quite a lot. And um, one practitioner would claim um, I know 108 vital spots because there are 108 vital spots. And in fact, most practitioners and manuscripts that talk about the vital spots um, talk about the number of 108 vital spots. But now in the uh, Indian, especially the Hindu context, 108 as a number is also very symbolic, very telling in terms of um, com conveying completeness a kind of holism. So if you uh, know all the 108 names of God Vishnu, for example, then you are very um, devoted to Vishnu. And uh, there are then 1,008 names of Vishnu or there are 108 dance postures, for example. So 108 is, is, a, is a also a kind of symbolic number which um, tells us that something is complete. So if a practitioner talks about his knowledge of 108 spots, then... Um, he indicates also that he has learned the system uh, to its completeness. Um, and um, if, if you observe the actual practice, and this is not me kind of trying to um, cut down the, the practitioners or to, to say that they don't know as many spots as they claim to know. Uh, in fact, many practitioners may know many more spots. They may utilize 200 spots of them, or they use just 40 of them and they may, you know, uh, 60 or something. But this 108 is the kind of, is um, like the yardstick, is a symbolic yardstick in, in uh, numeral terms. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, so it's, it's about this kind of completeness. Now, um, having said that one may know 40 and the other may, six, may know 60, does not mean that the one who knows 60 may the, knows the, the 40 that the other knows and 20 on top of that but they may know in fact um, completely different spots and you may find one manuscript talking about 108 spots and another manuscript talking about uh, 108 uh, among which um, um, many are completely different uh, from, from the, the first manuscript or many names uh, to actually contradict each other or um, you have the same name for different spots. And actually, I have this um, whole chapter in my book on these kind of discrepancies. And I think uh, now reading it, I think it's it's too much of discrepancy. It must just uh, throw readers off. But I was um, doing my research and, and during writing, I was so um, maybe obsessed with why is there so much uh, discrepancy and, and this information just doesn't fit here in this context and this practitioner's um, actions do not make sense in, 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 another's, uh, in, in another kind of uh, practitioner's rationale. So, and I, it took me quite some time to understand what we have is a, is a more a kind of plurality of practices that um, and within any of these systems rather than one single system or theory, um, a particular action or a particular uh, name for a location or um, stimulation um, therapy may make sense, but it may not make sense in another. So that you have 
quite um, conflicting and, and um, different practices that you find. So this is another point, another aspect why incorporation of these practices into uh, modern-day curricula into these colleges and in universities and kind of um, stabilizing or institutionalizing these has really made a lot of problems for, for people interested in, in this kind of institutionalization problem and process. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I imagine it was a real problem for you as a researcher when you first arrived into the topic. It must have, uh, yeah, it must have been an extremely daunting task. But now I, now I want to probe you a little bit on something which you which you mentioned before and this was you actually mentioned the context that we might find it in those of us who are in the west might find it difficult uh, to to understand um vital spots as being both healing and fighting understood together so i was wondering could i push you a little bit more to talk about this uh, symbiotic relationship between the two right yes uh, which i consider the one of the main parts mm -hmm. of the book or, or my study and um, I was quite sure before going to the field that you would find uh, either or. And of course, you find either this setting or this uh, um, situation, which is uh, uh, medical, so to say. And you find another, which is martial. You, you don't find the two at the same time. Uh, obviously, that would be quite difficult. And yet, healing and harming, so to say, go in tandem. <laughs> Um, what I like to, um, for presentations, for example, I like to show one slide, which I find, um, among others, symbolizes this as well, uh, symbolizes this best. It's the, the mudras. The mudras are um, hand postures or finger postures. Um, mudras are something that you can find in, in everyday Indian life, in fact. There you have the Namaskara Mudra, which is uh, the uh, saying good day or hello to someone you meet on the street. Not someone you meet on the street, obviously, but someone uh, you respect or a friend. You, so you uh, f um, uh, bring your, the, the palms of your hands together in, in, as a kind of greeting. It's a greeting posture. And that's called actually a Mudra. And there are Mudras used in uh, ritual, in prayer. In the Hindu puja, you have a lot of uh, mudras used. So the particular finger um, postures that have a symbolic meaning and often also a kind of, uh, um, yeah, a more than symbolic meaning. And you have a particular set of uh, vital spot mudras, vital spot finger postures. Now, these postures are, for example, uh, making a fist as easy as, as that making a fist or um, just um, uh, raising one, um, one finger, like the index finger, like the, the tip of a needle. And then you can use these mudras as uh, therapeutic uh, tools. It may also be surprising to, uh, I can imagine, to many uh, medical specialists in, in Germany to hear that the, the, the soul, if, yeah, if, if not the soul, the, the main, if not the soul, tool of medical practitioners of these vital spots are their hands. Of course, you have physiotherapy and, and other uh, manual therapies uh, which, which just function the same way or more or less. Now you have these mudras in, in these vital spots mudras and the exact same mudras are not just used inside the clinics. 
for example, during massage, you can use these fists. Yeah. So these practitioners just do not uh, posture their, their fingers and use the hands uh, whatever way they want, but they use these mudras. You can also clearly see them. And you do not, you do not just find them in the clinics, but also in uh, these so-called kalaris. Kalari is the, the training ground, uh, training grounds where these martial art practices are found and trained. It's the same tools, the same techniques, the same hand postures that are used to um, inflict pain and injury to these spots that are used to therapy uh, and and to um, yeah to to massage patients and to um, yeah apply pressure to these spots in in a therapeutic way. So I I always find this is somehow for me the the the, the entry in, into explaining it it really belongs together. Both these kind of the both sides of the medallion the um, the medical and the martial. And then, moreover, as and and you can put it in in such um, very clear words as the my main informant, Velayudan um, um, That's at least how I uh, have uh, called him in, for the sake of my book. Velayudan uh, told me, if you know how bones break, then you know how they heal. Or if you know how mm-hmm. bones heal, then you know. Uh, how they break. And if you know which bones are very complicated in healing, then th- this is one really uh, a good recipe for, um, for for attacking someone, actually. Yeah, if, if you know how, um, how a bone breaks and, and you will know how it breaks, yeah, you know the, the anatomy uh, of, of uh, persons if you practice or if you practice medicine, yes. Uh, and if you know that anatomy... It's quite easy to practice these martial um, exercises, many of which um, hinge upon locks also on on techniques that um, do not bring you in a position to that you have to use um, your vital spot knowledge at all, that you do not have to kind of attack these vital spots because that's actually potentially dangerous. And um, you do not want to kill everyone uh, who you're fighting, right? So if you just want to disarm someone... Uh, you may want to use a kind of a locking technique. And many of these locking techniques or kind of uh, techniques for disabling, uh, disarming uh, your opponent hinge upon uh, inflicting pain. Um, and it's often extreme pain. And that's exactly what these, many of these vital spots do. Think about the um, funny bone. If if you're holding a weapon in your hand and, and you hit your funny bone, you may drop your your weapon. And that's what's done. Yeah. So if, if you know uh, the spots that hurt, if you know the spots that are complicated for treatments, for example, then, then you know how to do harm also. And the other way around too, if you uh, know how to um, inflict harm, then uh, often you, you are actually uh, close to uh, treating it. So I think that the closeness of the the kalari, that is the training ground, and the uh, the the clinics, the vaityasalai, that's the Tamil term, uh, makes a lot of sense. So if you're training, for example, in in the back of of that uh, clinic where the training ground is, is situated, and one of the student uh, one of the students has an injury, kind of combat combat or exercise related injury, then he or she is rushed into the clinic and and treated there. And um, 
just like in color repairer now that's another uh, deviation but actually it's not such a, a, a great deviation color repairer which is the um considered the traditional um martial arts of color uh, sorry of kerala state which is just the neighboring state of tamil nadu there you have uh, a kind of massaging students as a routine uh, as a routine aspect or routine uh, part of the um, martial arts practice so the kind of combination the uh, spatial proximity and also the 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 structural proximity and the theoretical proximity too of the uh, fighting and healing does make a lot of sense <laughs> wonderful thank you um i'm going to there's a there's a really interesting chapter which chapter four, which looks at um the, the medical practice side of things but uh, i'm going to skip over that with with an eye on the time and and talk about i want to talk about right. what i thought was was for me was the most enjoyable chapter which was chapter five called virtue and liability and it, and it focuses on secrecy and concealment and you mentioned this in your opening remarks that despite the fact it's a subject really central to, to all of our lives it really has seen really limited amazingly limited uh, scholarly attention and of course secrecy is such a such a, a vital a vital part of um, so I guess it's, it's a great place exactly for you to, to open up this discussion of secrecy wider. So, um, but I'll ask you a sort of a narrow question to get you in there. I was wondering, like, how are, how are secrets kept within the practicing of, of these vital spots? And what, what does keeping secrets do to those who keep them? How does it affect them? Yeah, exactly. Secrecy is absolutely central. And um, although I do think secrecy as a subject matter has received quite a bit of scholarly attention. Uh-huh. Although I believe you are right, uh, given the importance in our lives, um, secrecy is actually rarely made um, the focus of, of many anthropological, sociological, or even other studies for the matter. And even if it is, um, secrecy may remain as a in by in definitions or as a kind of as an um, as a concept may remain quite abstract. Uh, Georg Simmel, for example, example the German sociologist was one of the first to pay f- focused attention to secrecy, secrets, uh, secret societies, and what he wrote. It may actually uh, be uh, worthwhile to recapitulate some of what he wrote, which is that. Secrets actually work like an ornament. If it's actually it's it's like a cover, right? But you, if you were to wear this cover, it would probably a, a jewel, um, a, like like a, a full of jewelry, a, a nice kind of uh, uh, ornamented cover that everyone can see. And the effect, the sociological effect for Georg Simmel, therefore, was. Um, that secrecy elevates an individual's status. So the individual in possession of secrets um, is raised in society. And um, Simmel even went further. He went so far as to say that um, this sociological um, expression of secrets and secrecy and the sociologi- sociological um, meaning 
is very much um, it's not depending on whether there is an actual secret or not so you could claim that you're in possession of a secret and whether this is true or not your status will be raised so and um i think this is quite uh, this is very interesting and and simil had obviously more to say on, on secrecy too but this is one of the things that really stuck with um social scientists for for centuries and for generations to come not centuries for generations to come and um what simil did there was actually to uh, separate form from content so simil was not interested in content obviously he said uh, regardless of the content of the secret or in other words regardless of whether there is an actual secret or not the secrecy or the secret um, the, the sociological function of secrecy uh, raises one's status so that's the form that's the social or the sociological form that simil was interested in and his um so the the simalian heritage so to say is that researchers have um after simil tended to look at the sociological form of secrecy only so content has not been um important and the result of this is not very surprising um the researchers have um routinely described secrets and secret cults as empty so there there's actually a um a, a long list of of names that I could drop which I'm not doing now um that who have uh written on this or that secret and some so the the some of the results uh include that there's actually nothing behind it but so this is quite interesting and and the the separation of form and content is also not something very different from other fields Tanya Lurman has actually recently in in a very nice article in a very nice chapter in in a book um on uh, what counts as data that's the title of um Tanya Lurman's um chapter what counts as data she uh, writes that anthropologists tend to focus on form and tend to shy away from describing or even dealing with content Mm-hmm. so as as examples um from other areas you could um you could mention anthropologists typically study kinship uh, relations and kinship terms kinship conce- conceptions but they do not bother so much with the actual like biological uh, uh relations yeah so there there's there's one part of it is being bracketed out or is being uh, seen as as something different and also then of course it's not seen as the um the field of expertise and um the the field where anthropologists should actually engage in right and and another example would be uh gender and sex right so it's it's quite similar so um to to make a, a probably a long uh, discussion very short the um the separation of content from form most probably is related to the separation of nature and culture so and um whereas not whereas i mean in in anthropology nowadays you f- you find a range of studies which actually are based on uh fighting this um great grand dichotomy between nature and culture and maybe in in this is 
quite parallel in my book that I'm trying to fight against this dichotomy between form and content. And I'm saying, yeah, and you could say you have this form of secrecy and people kind of, they may benefit from their secretive behavior and stating is a secret, I cannot talk about it. And a lot, a good deal of the, um, the healing and medic martial efficacy also may hinge upon this uh, secretiveness. So if um, it's it's a very kind of um, uh, particular um, consultation and and therapy if the secrecy is being um, emphasized again and again, and also if you um, have to do with an opponent in a fight or in an imagined fight in in an imagined uh, fight where you don't know what your opponent actually knows, some secret kind of um, technique which may kill you in seconds, then you are probably, um, you you might refrain from attacking this person because it's not clear. The person is claiming to know something, uh, a, a deadly art of fighting, and that will probably um, make you refrain from engaging in, in a fight. So a lot of this kind of efficacy that, that um, is can be seen in, in both these uh, practices, I think hinge hinges upon um, this secretiveness on on the on the secrets on the secrecy. Mm-hmm. And but I think it's it's completely uh, misguided. It's a mistake to then say to then conclude and say, um, okay, you have this sociological form, and that is one thing, and the content is is a quite a different thing, and we need not look at it, and um, um, the sociological expression of secrecy um, is regardless of whether there are contents or uh, what these contents look like, in other words, if there is a secret or um, what this secret looks like. Now, uh, when I planned my research, um, I was uh, quite naive in planning and I was completely falling into this separation between form and content. And actually, um, I wanted to protect my um, informants in Spay and say, okay, they think it's, uh, or not they think, they for them it's an, a secret um, practice and I would like to respect that. And therefore, I'm going to the field and um, I'm, I'm talking to informants, I'm, I'm telling them, uh, look, I'm not here to steal your secrets. Keep your secrets. Um, I'm here to observe how, for example, secrets are um, um, yeah, handed down. How is, how is uh, secret knowledge actually uh, taught? How do, you, how do you learn a secret art? I'm completely puzzled. I want to study this. And um, I'm not interested in any actual secrets, but just in the how. So this is the, the this is the uh, separation form and content um, as, as best as you can you can do it, and it was quite naive, and I find found out the naivety, and I found out that it's not uh, possible to do it, or at least it's not possible to to render any kind of uh, significant or any uh, satisfactory account of a secret or of secrecy if you look only at the form. Or only on of uh, only at content for the matter. I learned that when um, one day I 
uh, I was um, for some days engaged in uh, studying how uh, a particular diagnostic method that is used in uh, in many Indian medical practices, actually in Ayurveda and Siddha and in others too, but uh, very um, prominently it's it's uh, practiced in Varmakalai and Varma medical practices. That is uh, pulse reading. And this pulse reading is quite looks quite different from the um, diastolic systolic pulse reading that is used in in biomedicine in the West in uh, North America, in Europe, of course, also in in India and other places where um, there are uh, biomedical doctors. It looks quite different and is uh, most often a very kind of it's a it's a tacit process. Uh, fingers of the uh, physician probe. Uh, the forearm, and they take some time. But often physicians afterwards are able to uh, pronounce this and that as the patient's problem without actually having uh, spoken a word with the patient altogether. So it has been uh, quite Im impressive to, to me and to other researchers too uh, how the pulse reading uh, uh, diagnosis is, is conducted. So I was looking at that. And also there's a clear kind of relation to the uh, physicalness, to the um, um, embodiedness, to the um, corporeality of uh, vital sport practices altogether, which I already mentioned is a, is a hands-on practice, hands-on uh, um, instruction process and so on and so forth. And the practitioner who I was uh, talking to, Vilayudan again, who I mentioned earlier, uh, then stopped short and told me, uh, Look, it's not possible. I I cannot um, explain uh, pulse reading further from from this point on. And I I thought, okay, I'm not an initiated student. I'm probing too deep, probably into some uh, possible secrets, even though I may not understand uh, what, what is a secret here. But then the um, practitioner made sure that he's actually not um, drawing a line. But he called me over and said, and and put my hand on his on his wrist in the same position that he had been uh, diagnosing or he had been uh, reading the, the pulse of a patient uh, just before that. And then I was reading his pulse and I was feeling with my fingers things that uh, he would not have been able to ex explain in words. So uh, a lot of the knowledge that um, feeds the, the vital spot um, theory and practice is about not um, is about knowledge that is not easily verbalized and that has not been verbalized. Many of the manuscripts that I mentioned, I mean texts that write about the vital spots, but uh, despite mentioning the names and more or less the locations, they tell you if you want to learn more, go to an experienced guru, go to an experienced master of the art and he will teach you so it's it's a it's a very tacit it's an embodied kind of uh, practice and this it it uh, dawned on me is part of the secrecy too and it it struck me that secrecy has more layers more aspects than um just the kind of moral uh, this kind of moral layer that is often um, repeated by practitioners who say 
I cannot talk about the practice because it's a dangerous practice. It's my moral obligation to keep it secret, to keep it for myself. They also say I cannot, I mean, they, they express their uh, physical inability to, to put into words, to verbalize uh, most of these practices that they deal with. <laughs> yeah. And this is, is then reflected in um, a couple of things. For example, in the instruction of the practice. The transmission of vital sport practices and its theory has also not worked in, in terms of in, incorporating it into um, standard, standardized curriculum, into um, these institutions in the form of universities and colleges in India. Because in, in these institutions, you do not have, so far, you do not have uh, ways of communicating this tacit knowledge, this uh, incorporated knowledge or this knowledge that has to be incorporated, that has to be learned hands-on in order to uh, deal with the subject matter in a satisfactory uh, way. And um, the people who know it so far have not been ready to participate in the institutionalization pro process uh, for mainly for that very uh, reason because um, there they would have to go act as uh, teachers and not as gurus and there's a, a big difference not as respected masters but as someone who kind of um, hands out textbooks and these textbooks then anyway um, at least in from from the understanding of of the experienced practitioners are not capable of um, transporting the same um, the same depth of detail with regard to where exactly is the spot located. And it's not always, it may not be always the very same spots in, in every patient because um, you have to actually feel with your hand uh, precisely um, where the spot is located in, in every patient. So there's no way of uh, exactly and objectively measuring um, where a spot is, but it has to be intuitively and um, very uh, uh, corporately, it has to be uh, feel felt. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, wonderful. Right. Mm -hmm. Sorry. Yeah, and so uh, I, I found out that um, this kind of naive uh, separation between form and content would not be uh, a, a wise decision to take for the research. And then uh, I maybe not as a kind of conscious. Uh, decision and it, I was also prompted uh, into that. I was kind of uh, drawn uh, deeper and deeper into um, in, into learning in this kind of hands-on learning, and I realized that along with it come also um, these moral layers of secrecy too. And then, if you're accepted and initiated, in fact, as a in, into this learning relationship and accepted by a uh, um, an experienced practitioner to um, be his or her student, then um, it it also includes like uh, moral obligations, uh, considering the, um, the 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 word of of the master as as very um, uh, important and and to be definitely to be followed. And the the other way around, it's the same is true. The the guru. Uh, treats her, his or her students as almost like a father or mother and uh, makes sure that um, that the 
students follow the the uh, path, so to say, correctly. It sounds very esoteric, but um, um, there are these both these moral obligations and this embodied side of secrecy. And I found um, th this has not been described um, for secrecy before, and and maybe uh, this may hold true for other, especially esoteric traditions. And esoteric traditions, for example, have been often misread is because they have precisely been read only the text for example but not the very um like the initiation and the uh transmission structure and uh, many of the esoteric ideas seem very abstract and very tantric what we make of uh, tantrism as the core of tantrism they have been remained very abstract because only this kind of form not the content has been looked at and and the while I'm not like revealing any of the secrets that I have been uh, told to keep, and in fact, it it would be difficult. It would be more difficult to reveal any reveal any of these uh, secret contents, precisely for the fact that uh, they pertain to an, an a different, not easily verbalized and not verbalizable um, layer or. Um, um, sphere. I think it's it's quite safe for me to talk and write, even write about the vital spots without actually uh, giving out any secrets or revealing anything that I have been told not to reveal. Yeah. So and and the same is the true that uh, the same is the uh, reason that uh, Varmakale has not been successfully uh, institutionalized, brought into these classroom uh, environments. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yes, I should say this is a. It's a it's a really fascinating book, but you don't learn how the, the art of vital spots by reading it. <laughs> but uh, you do learn That's many, true. yeah, <laughs> you do learn many many interesting things. Um, not only about the, the practitioners, but you know, like the discussions we've had about secrecy and about this relationship between healing and, and, and fighting and so on. Um, I think people listening at home will probably realize that we've only touched on a, a small. A small section of what is a really rich uh, and detailed book and I would really urge people to if they've enjoyed this conversation to really go and check the book out itself it really is a it really is a great great study but um, my final question to you for the purpose of the podcast is that now that this book is out and published what are your current and future projects that you're working on yeah thank you mm. um, I'm, I'm very sure that to continue working in Tamil-speaking areas for quite some time. I'm uh, willing, ready, and consider the um, the importance also to moving away, uh, of moving away at some point. But I'm, I'm so much kind of um, intrigued by the region, language, people, things that I've only kind of uh, scratched the surface of. So I, I'm very sure to continue researching in, in Tamil-speaking areas. For some time to come, and right now, and I'm thinking about a research project that would look at um, Indian systems of medicine. And earlier, I, I have talked about these systems or these systems approach in in very uh, almost, yeah. Um, I, I've, I'm looking down. <laughs> upon that because I, I don't consider these systems but there's also work a process of work going into systematizing or making these systems so I cannot uh, disagree um, that we are dealing with systems nowadays at least 
So I, I would like to look into uh, Indian systems uh, um, for some time to come. And right now I'm thinking about uh, looking at uh, Tamil Muslim medical practices, uh, mm -hmm. often termed also Yunani. And um, there I find a lot of interesting things to, um, to come together. Uh, identity politics, uh, religion, uh, medicine, of course, obviously. And um, for example, I would like to, to look at uh, the way how, um, how we can maybe frame uh, these the systems, how to, how to differentiate um, the, these medical systems, what is being done and so on and so forth. I think we can approach these questions uh, better and, or we can deliver um, more interesting answers by not focusing too much on a kind of symbolic, interpretative, uh, anthropological way. But maybe if we kind of try to combine um, or, or let, me, let me frame this in, in a different way, uh, so the, the symbolic uh, or interpretative uh, symbolic anthropologists are interested in, yeah, just that, in, in symbols. And um, that is fine. But for example, a medical system then would be viewed as uh, consisting of symbols, of explaining uh, cultural uh, instances, explaining health and ill health to people in uh, ways that uh, culturally make sense uh, to an individual, right? So um, implicit in, in that approach is that there is uh, something that is real and something that is cultural, so to say. It's again this kind of nature-culture uh, construct or nature-culture um, dichotomy. Now, the, the downside of the symbolic uh, interpretative um, approach in anthropology is that, that um, implicitly... A kind of a real a, uh, something that is more real that this, uh, than this uh, symbolic expression of medicine is being taken as granted. So, and I'm I I would like to move away from this in a, in a very kind of yeah explicit um, form and uh, open up the discussion, open up the analysis, um, and include not just symbols and um, um, cultural artifacts, but real artifacts and materials, so to say, and then look at how the um, combination of um, symbols and artifacts or materials come to make an, uh, a medical system. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wonderful. So this is this uh, um, idea is, is still very abstract and and it's in its uh, infancy. But uh, for the time being, I'm on uh, paternal leave actually for a couple of months, and I'm enjoying uh, my, the time with my wife and kids. Uh -huh. And at the same time, I'm I'm hoping to do a lot of en enjoying my time with, with wife and kids. But at the same time, I also want to kind of get this uh, research idea going and, and started. So, yeah, let's see. You see, wonderful. Well, 
I mean, that sounds absolutely fascinating. And we and we, we look forward to, I suppose, reading the fruits of that research um, a year or a few years down the line. And I think especially one of a few, a few, a few years down the line. And uh, I especially want to, to thank you for coming on the podcast and taking time out from your uh, paternal leave to do so. So really, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. And uh, thanks a lot for this chance to talk about this really wonderful book. You're welcome, Ian, and thank you a lot for inviting me to be part of this uh, exciting series. Thanks so much for downloading the new books in South Asian Studies podcast. I've been your host, Ian Cook, and today we've been talking about Lethal Spots, Vital Secrets by Roman Seeler. I really hope you enjoyed our discussion as much as I did, and I hope you download again next time. Ta-ra!